Hello, everybody. Welcome to Random Trek Book Review. Yes, it's the podcast where we analyze, discuss, and review not-so-randomly selected Star Trek books or novels. My name is Andrew, and actually, I'm flying solo this week on RTBR as my good buddy Matt is trapped in the Nexus. And uh, who knows what he's doing in there? Probably uh, celebrating Christmas or something. But never fear. Matt is going to, of course, be back next week for our regular RTR programming. This is more of kind of a special episode looking at the Star Trek Discovery first book, Desperate Hours. It was released on September the 26th, 2017. The cover features Sonequa Martin-Green as Lieutenant Michael Burnham. It was written by David Mack, and the audiobook was narrated by Susan Eisenberg. If you haven't had a chance to read it or check it out yet, the back cover synopsis reads this. Aboard the starship Senzu, Lieutenant Michael Burnham, a human woman raised and educated among Vulcans, is promoted to acting first officer. But if she wants to keep the job, she must prove to Captain Philippa Giorgio that she deserves to have it. She gets her chance when the Shenzhou must protect a Federation colony that is under attack by an ancient alien vessel that has surfaced from the deepest fathoms of the planet's dark, uncharted sea. As the menace from the mysterious vessel grows stronger, Starfleet declares the colony expendable in the name of halting the threat. To save thousands of innocent lives, Burnham must infiltrate the alien ship, but to do so, she needs to face the truth of her troubled past and seek the aid of a man she tried to avoid her entire life until now. I tried to keep the segments the same as your regular RTR programming, so I'll give you a quick one-minute overall of what I thought of the book, how easy it was to read, and how engaging I thought it was. It's pretty good. I think that this book was being written around the same time as when Season 1 of Discovery was being filmed, uh, or the episodes were being written, and it kind of feels that way. It's a relatively easy read. I read it in about four or five days, and it's engaging enough that it will keep you coming back to it. That being said, I was kind of expecting or hoping a little bit more in terms of some of the characters that you see on the TV show, uh, in the background, things like that. I was hoping to get a little bit more information on them, and you do get a little bit, but just not as much as I had hoped. In terms of background and development for the book, it takes place about one year before the Battle of the Binary Stars. And for those of you that remember, that was the second episode of Star Trek Discovery Season 1. Uh, apparently, a lot of the characters in the book were also invented by David Mack, the author. Uh, a quote that I found on the internet was, Most of them I developed on my own, along with detailed character bios, backstories, quirks, interests, etc. Those were then submitted to the show's showrunner, Kristen Bayer, for approval. Some, such as Gant, Detimer, and Januzzi, ended up being used on the show. A few others, like Connor and Birch and Wheaton, were established by the show's writers. Also, Kristen tells me that the Shenzhou's bridge crew actors were given my bios of their characters to provide a foundation for their performances. Alright folks, let's dive headlong into the plot, because of course that's the reason we're all here. If you haven't read Desperate Hours yet, then make sure you run down to the library or bookstore and grab yourself a copy before you continue on, because this will be spoiler-filled. Alright, you've been warned. The book starts with a Spy Who Loves Me slash Tomorrow Never Dies style attack on a ship or an oil rig. It involves mostly characters that we don't know, and is just 
kind of setting up the power dynamic of this big supervillain that we're going to see throughout the book. It's an okay way to start, and it's only about four or five pages, so it does its job in cooking the reader and getting you to wonder what this mystery is. From here, I've broken up the plot into four or five big chunks. I'll speak to each of them individually and give my thoughts, and then at the end kind of give an overall feeling of the book as a whole. The first one is Burnham versus Saru. Uh, Burnham and Saru are vying for the first officer job at this point, and it's something that kind of continues into season one of Star Trek Discovery. It seems that it's subsequently been dropped by season two, especially with Saru and Michael always telling them, each other that they're family and that they love each other and things like that. But back in this time, uh, there was definitely some butting of heads and there was definitely some competition between which one was going to rise to the ranks uh, the fastest. Um, it's a bit of a slow burn, and it kind of runs through the first novels. I'm up to fear itself, and it's still something that's constantly mentioned. Um, and I kind of like it, to be honest. It reminds me a little bit of Lieutenant Commander Shelby and uh, Commander Riker in Best of Both Worlds. It's this healthy competition to improve your career. And I think that it's pretty realistic if you were to compare it to like even current military times, as well as just kind of current employment. Everybody's always striving to do better be better and you're in competition with the people that you work with so this is something in the book that I think worked really well uh, in the show it worked pretty well but obviously like I mentioned they kind of joined up and, and made amends after about the first season in this book they're definitely hostile towards each other and they don't get along very well uh, so you mostly see it at the beginning of the book where it's kind of introduced and then it's mentioned a couple of times throughout and then at the end of course Michael ends up being the one who's promoted to first officer and there's a little bit of sour grapes with Saru which again is an interesting concept and something that ties over into uh, the next book that we see which of course is Fear Itself. So the main plot of this book is that there is a giant ancient juggernaut that has been submerged on Sursa 3 for thousands of years. When these oilers at the beginning were drilling, they ended up unleashing this thing upon the nearby settlement. It sends drones in every couple of hours and they basically shoot and blow up buildings and cause havoc in general. The Shenzhou is the first on the scene. It picks up the distress signal and uh, wants to use kind of a diplomatic way to solve the problem. Uh, but the Enterprise with Captain Pike is met with them shortly thereafter. And they actually have orders from Starfleet to blow it up using any means necessary, even if it means blowing up the colony. This section of the book is pretty good. We get some good scenes with Giorgio and Pike. Um, Giorgio convinces Pike to go a little bit longer before he ends up uh, you know, blowing this thing up. But because the drones keep getting stronger, it does create kind of a ticking clock scenario. There's even a point where Pike decides that he's going to blow it up, and Giorgio uses the Shenzhou to block it. Uh, I felt like this stuff was some pretty, pretty, pretty general Star Trek uh, stuff. You know, the diplomatic solution to the problem versus the more aggressive solution to the problem. It's a little bit weird seeing the Enterprise as the aggressive one in this situation. And, of course, this was before Pike was cast by Anson Mount for Season 2 and things like that. So he ends up being a little bit different, feeling a little bit different than uh, what we end up seeing in Season 2. That being said, it was pretty good. And uh, it is, again, general Star Trek fare. So this part of the book was all right. 
The section of the book that I liked a little bit more was actually the Burnham and Spock stuff. So Giorgio chooses Burnham to send down to the Juggernaut to try to figure out a way of stopping it at the ground level. And Pike decides to send Spock, uh, I guess because he's the most suitable for the job, even though Burnham and Spock have kind of this tenuous relationship that we uh, learn a little bit about, but not a whole bunch. Um, it turns out that this juggernaut is a test for civilizations. Uh, if you can pass a variety of tests, then you will kind of be accepted, whereas if you fail, uh, then you'll be wiped out. And it seems like the original colony on this planet had been wiped out because they didn't pass the tests. Um, the tests are the most interesting part, and the little bit of... Uh, conversation that we get between Spock and Burnham is interesting. Um, it's nowhere near what we end up getting in season two of Discovery, but we get a little taste of it. And again, I think that they were really kind of pulling their punches because they didn't know what the show was going to do at the time. And unfortunately, that kind of means that they end up spending a lot of the book dancing around the topic and not really giving us much more than what we already knew in season one, just that they have a bad relationship and that they haven't seen each other in a long time. The other thing I don't really love about the whole Juggernaut situation is that at the end, the Juggernaut just continues to attack. So they end up passing all of the tests, and then the Juggernaut just attacks anyway, which I thought was just an excuse to have another big action scene where they try to disable it with the Shenzhou and the Enterprise teaming up. Um, the action's well written, but I just don't think that it really makes sense that we spend this entire book passing all these tests and stuff just to get to a point where uh, they stick to their original solution that they were going to use on the Enterprise. So um, that part of it was a little bit of a disappointment, but it definitely is well written and it's engaging because you're always curious as to what the next test is going to be and how are Spock and Burnham going to kind of team up and solve the problem. So it's a pretty simple plot and uh, like I said, it's engaging the whole way through. There are some kind of interesting realizations that uh, David Mack tried to get in there to explain some of the problems that people had with uh, season one of Discovery. Um, so one of the things that they do is they explain that the Enterprise doesn't have holograms because it ends up using too much bandwidth, which is kind of an interesting idea. Um, and I kind of like that better than what we end up getting in season two, which was that artificial intelligence is too risky and uh, Pike doesn't like it, so he has them taken out. The bandwidth thing makes it seem like a logical reason and that it's easier to just send video than it is to send a full hologram so I kind of did like that even though it ended up getting dropped um, some of the uh, different uniform changes and aesthetics uh, are explained that uh, people on the Enterprise are wearing the more diplomatic uniforms as well as humans just tend to change their aesthetics more frequently so the Enterprise has the more up-to-date gold red and blue uniforms that was never explicitly said in season two but I think that it's a pretty reasonable explanation especially when you think about like Wrath of Khan and stuff when they went to really different uniforms it makes sense I guess that they kind of change relatively frequently um, there is a subplot that I didn't really talk about. It involves a lot of the generic characters like Gant. Um, they're attacking down the government and uh, the governor and things like that are hiding in these series of caves. I wasn't super interested in it. You don't get a lot of character development from any of the characters that are on the mission. And it's pretty much just action stuff that I really kind of 
just speed read through because I didn't find it that interesting. I was more interested in the main characters because uh, when I read this back during season one, I felt like there was a lot of stuff that I wanted to know about the Discovery characters that I didn't know yet. So the people in the background and stuff, um, I didn't even necessarily know who they were until season two rolled around and they gave a little bit more detail about their names and things like that. Uh, one of the other things is that it turns out that the governor may have known that the juggernaut was there the whole time and that the former civilization that was there should have been studied ahead of time. So there is kind of like a Star Trekian uh, kind of debate and speech at the end about how, you know, they need to first look around the whole planet, do all of the details and make sure that it hasn't had a fast civilization that needs to be studied before they build a civilization. So that part of it was... I, kind of interesting, um, and again, that was more of Giorgio kind of saying that they needed to follow the correct channels before they do any of that kind of stuff. Um, the Juggernaut was uh, from the Turanian Dynasty, um, which I double-checked. This is not from any of the shows or anything like that. I think it was made up just for this book, um, and I guess they just went around testing societies. That was uh, kind of their whole, their whole deal. And last but not least, uh, this is the book where Burnham gets promoted to Lieutenant Commander. And uh, like I mentioned, she ends up becoming the first officer. Um, I am always a big fan of like the ranking system and the you know ranks on the ship and who is uh, commanding who. So I did like this part. Um, I don't know that I would have picked Burnham over Saru, but she did solve the tests. And so I guess she was as good of a pick as any. And it is kind of a nice way to end the book, especially since... Um, it's shortly before we catch up with her in the, uh, the pilot. So I thought that that was a good way to end the book. And I, like I said, like this kind of stuff. All right, let's talk about some of the uh, cast and characters here. Obviously, the main character is Michael Burnham. She plays off pretty similarly to how she does in the TV show, where she is a, a little bit of a know-it-all, a little bit of a Mary Sue, but uh, I think that her relationship with Spock and Captain Giorgio is a little bit more underplayed than what we typically see in the TV show. So I think that she was a pretty good character. Uh, she got the accommodation like we talked about just a second ago and I think that her solving the puzzles and things like that is pretty true to the character so uh, for the Michael Burnham character as much as I don't love that character uh, the book didn't really kind of get hurt by that I think that they did a pretty good job writing it. Captain Giorgio uh, again uh, she's not really seen in her non-mirror version on the TV show uh, for very long before she's killed off and so I think that this is nice to see her in her regular human non-Terran self. Uh, I think that she has the very strict Starfleet uh, mindset like we saw in season one and it carries through to here so she is against Pike and the Enterprise blowing up the Juggernaut especially since it could potentially affect the civilization and that's very Starfleet it's very by the book and it's the way that we see Giorgio or the way that I think of Giorgio when I think about her so her character was well written and she kind of has like that spunky attitude that we saw Michelle Yeoh give her in the TV series so that was nice to see as well. As for Captain Pike um, I read this before season two came about so it's hard for me to kind of piece together. I was kind of looking at, uh, you know, the cage pike when I was reading it, and it didn't seem to kind of match up necessarily with what I thought, but again, I didn't know much about him. Uh, his mindset to kind of follow the orders, I guess, 
sits well with the character, and I think that uh, the Captain Pike character is interesting enough, if nothing else, just kind of for the nostalgia's sake. So Captain Pike was okay in this. He's not in a whole ton, but him and Giorgio do have some good scenes together. Uh, Mr. Spock, uh, again, because Ethan Peck hadn't been cast yet, and because I read this before all of the Season 2 stuff kind of happened, I was picturing Leonard Nimoy, and because I was picturing Leonard Nimoy, it felt really hard to get him into this universe. So whenever I was reading the scenes where he was talking to Michael or they were talking about him, it was hard for my brain to kind of grasp it. I think that when season two came along with the TV show, they did pretty good with it. But when I was reading the book, it just kind of felt like, well, what a lot of people thought when they announced that uh, Michael Burnham was Spock's sister. How is this going to look? How does this feel? How do they know each other? Why didn't she, he never mention her before? And so that was kind of my feel throughout it. I did like when they did the mind meld, and I did like the tests that they did in the Juggernaut. Uh, you get some kind of Spock wit, and you get some kind of classic Spock feel. But again, it's hard feeling like he fits in this universe. And uh, especially, again, before Season 2 came about, I, with picturing Leonard Nimoy, it kind of made for a weird feel. Uh, lastly is Saru. Uh, um, Saru is pretty well written as well. Um, I think that he is pretty much exactly what you would expect from him, especially uh, early Saru. Uh, he has the whole fear thing, and it kind of is maybe limiting him in his progression for getting a, a promotion. Uh, but that part of it is is nice to see. Uh, and I think that his interactions with Burnham, especially since they're a little bit prickly, are very interesting. So again, I already talked about how I liked that aspect of the book, but the Saru character is is good in this, and I think that, uh, yeah, when I read it, I was thinking that Saru probably could use his own book, and of course, a couple books later, they did Fear Itself. Some interesting production notes for uh, Desperate Hours. Uh, this is actually the first time that they mentioned that Burnham wanted to see a supernova. Um, they did eventually mention it again in Season 1, Episode Take My Hand, but this was the first time that Burnham shows any kind of guilt about making her parents stay behind to watch the supernova, and of course that would eventually lead to them getting killed by the Klingons. So kind of a nice little tie-in. It was, it was nice to see, especially since I had already watched Season 1, so I knew that, but it was a... Um, it was a nice little tie-in to the series, which of course is the reason we're reading these books, if I'm being 100% honest. Uh, it's also the first mention that Saru was rescued from uh, his home world and that he's the only person in Starfleet. Uh, we would later find this out in the short trek, Brightest Star, but again, I liked that they had the forethought to kind of write him a little backstory and give him a reason as to why we haven't seen these kind of uh, species before. Uh, they make a mistake and call his home world Kelpia, which we again find out is Kaminar when we get to uh, the short treks in season two and things like that but I kind of forgive that because when the guy was writing this book it was probably not known what all the planets were going to be called and stuff like that so I give him a free pass on that one. Um, another kind of mistake that they make here is that Pike and Giorgio's interaction is later contradicted in the season two episode Saints of Imperfection that was in season two um, when somebody mentions that they went to the academy together so uh, again a little bit of retrofitting I feel like this book especially since it was the first one out um, it has some problems some mistakes uh, but I think mostly it's forgivable in terms of continuity and canon and things like that. Not that Discovery is, you know, super uh, great for following canon anyway. So when you get to the book series, I'm pretty sure they don't really count them, but it, these small little nitpicks are not a big deal. 
Um, and lastly, uh, Pike's first officer is given the name Una, which is later confirmed in Such Sweet Sorrow Part 2, which was the season finale for Season 2 of Discovery. Um, it was later confirmed by Michelle Paradise, so again, a nice little tie-in, a nice little nugget for the super fans out there to pick up. So um, that's all I got for production notes. Again, with books, I don't think that there's a lot of kind of interviews and things like that where you get lots of little pieces. So the fact that they were able to kind of tie this many things to the show... Was, was nice and definitely was uh, a welcomed addition. For memorable scenes, quotes, things like that, uh, there wasn't really too many memorable scenes. I guess the one thing I did like was when they had to mind meld in order to solve kind of this one particular puzzle. So they had to be thinking conjointly, almost like telepathic. And so they did a mind meld so they'd be able to solve a puzzle. It was kind of the best puzzle that they ended up having to do because a lot of the puzzles end up just kind of being uh, having to deal with tremendous heat or tremendous stress um, and that kind of thing. So uh, my final thoughts on Desperate Hours is it's a first book of uh, I'm assuming is going to be a lot of Star Trek Discovery series um, and it was pretty good. I think that uh, they maybe tried to do the Spock thing a little bit too quickly and that should have maybe been saved for uh, after the TV people figured out what they wanted to do with him. But if you forgive that and you kind of just look at it as a one-off, it's it's a decent read. The whole Juggernaut thing is kind of interesting and I think that they did a pretty good job of uh, keeping you engaged as you read through. A little bit more with the characters, a little bit more backstory, a little bit more information on Saru and Michael Burnham and all these things would have been nice, but as a three, four day read, uh, it was a pretty good one. Uh, so out of a total of five Terranian juggernauts, I would probably give this one a three out of five. And that'll do it for uh, this edition of RTBR. Uh, hopefully you guys like this and uh, make sure that you, you know, Join us on Instagram, give us a five-star iTunes report back, um, give us a quick email to randomtrekreview at gmail.com, and of course, Matt will be back from the Nexus next week, so you can always come and pick us up there when we're back to our regular scheduled RTR programming, and uh, I'm not sure when I'll get to drastic measures, but the next time uh, RTBR returns, that's what we'll be looking at, is drastic measures. <laughs>